you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 will be in verses 1 to 7. It's good to be back here the last couple of weeks. Uh, my wife and I were with the youth. We haven't been invited on a youth mission trip. Well, let's see, Jeff's, or uh, Isaiah said he was 37. Yeah, I was probably 37 the last time I was invited on a youth mission trip. And my wife went with the group to London and I got to go with the superior group to the Dominican Republic. And uh, I will just say this, uh, our youth were amazing. Uh, in the Dominican, I can say I never heard a single youth complain once. I never asked a single youth to do anything. They just jumped up and did it. I don't think there were any arguing, which is amazing because we actually had some parents with kids and several different families. No arguing. We had siblings. No arguing. They just served the Lord and they worshiped. They made great relationships with kids from another culture. It was really a joy. I hope it's not 20-some years before I'm invited back again. Uh, but it was uh, really a joy to be, not only with our brothers and sisters in the Dominican, but to see how our youth work. And my wife would say the same thing about London. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at Acts 6, 1-7. Father God, it's that time in our calendar when we celebrate the independence that we have as a nation, and we're grateful. And we who know Christ have been set free twice, the greater set free from the bondage of sin that leads to death through faith in your son, Jesus. Father, we do pray for our nation. We ask, Father, that we would be a nation that learns again to look up, that learns again to honor your inspired, inerrant word, that we would be people of the book, that we would be people who bow our knee before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We ask for wisdom for our president, President Biden. We ask for wisdom for our senators and our House of Representatives, our Supreme Court, and all the local courts and legislatures. We ask, Father, for laws that honor you. We ask that you would turn a nation back to you. We see glimpses of godliness, but we also see entrenched ungodliness in many, many facets of society, not just in our country, but in our world. And we love the nation that you have given us. And we love the freedom that you have granted us. May we as a nation use that freedom well and wisely, our liberty well and wisely, to live for you and to honor you. And Father, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, 
speak to our hearts, challenge us, encourage us, that we might be transformed by your truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Rebecca Pippert, many years ago, wrote a book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Perhaps you read it. In that particular book, she talks about Bill. Bill was a little countercultural, at least to mainstream culture. He grew up in the 60s and early 70s. He was what some would call a hippie. And Bill heard the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone. And he recognized, as we all must, that he, we are sinners in need of a savior. And that Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death. And by faith in Christ, he imputes his righteousness to us. And his death pays the penalty of our sin. And as we confess in the power of God's spirit, we repent and believe in Christ, we are saved. That happened in Bill's life. And Bill got the grand idea, having heard the gospel, having accepted Christ, maybe he ought to go to church. He had never been to one of those things before. And so there was a church not far from his home, a rather traditional one, and he entered that Sunday morning. He didn't know the first thing about church. Well, he knew one thing. He knew for a nine o'clock service, you come at 9.01. And so he walked in at 9.01, and the place was rather full. And he was in his regular garb, a t-shirt, holy jeans, before those were more in style, and he didn't have shoes on. He didn't live in central Wisconsin. And the place was packed, and he walked down the center aisle looking for a seat. He couldn't find one. He got to the front, and he thought, whatever. And he sat down cross-legged, waiting for the service to begin. Now, those of us who have been in church know that that is not what we typically do. First, we sit in the back as much as we can, not in the front. And the guy, obviously, he knows nothing. He sat in the front. They spit in the front when they get excited about sermons. He didn't know that. But he sat in the front, cross-legged, and a man in the back got up, an elderly man. He had been in the church for years. And with his cane, he started forward, and everybody knew this young boy was in for, well, a few words, to say the least. Because you don't walk into church without shoes and you don't sit cross-legged in the front. And when the elderly man got up to him, he slowly lowered himself and sat cross-legged and they worshiped the Lord that morning. And lots of people learned something far more important than tradition and that is to worship even with someone who is not like you. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. And that's what unity looks like. Unity crosses over not people who look like you, not people who act like you. In the Dominican, uh, we were in a number of services, several of which I preached or taught, so they were kind of American-like. But there was at least one that was outside of most of our comfort zones. And yet, unity worships even in an atmosphere that one is not used to, 
And our young people did a great job with that. As I thought about unity, I thought of a account that Dr. Dwight Pentecost, a professor of yesteryear at Dallas Theological Seminary tells, it's in one of his books. He said there was a church in Dallas, this is a true story, and the church had split and it was a nasty split and both sides demanded that they own the property. And it was such a nasty split that they both sued one another in a secular court. Never mind that 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we can't do that as believers in Christ. But they did. And a wise judge said, no, no. This goes back to your denomination. Your denomination will handle it. I will not. And so the denomination held up a ecclesiastical church court. And the long and the short of it is, after they had uncovered what caused this split, it went back to a potluck dinner in which an elder received a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. And as Dr. Pentecost writes in his book, the great tragedy of that story is that it made the front page of one of Dallas's newspapers. Can you imagine the shame on the name of Christ when a church splits over a piece of ham? And yet if we think clearly and we think honestly about some of the divisions that sometimes occur in our lives, maybe we have fought over something as insignificant as a piece of ham. Today's text is about unity. It's about unity in the church of Jesus Christ. Allow me to pick up. I want to read Acts 6, 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's something called the kupah, which is a Hebrew word meaning basket. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will report to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. Of course, the first known Christian martyr. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip, he will have daughters who will prophesy and he will be used mightily in the early church. And Procorius and Nicanor and Timon of Lion King fame. <laughs> and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want to set the scene. We're going back to the 30s in the first century in Jerusalem. 
And the church has been in Jerusalem in 480 different synagogues. We'll get to how we know that in a moment. It's not only divided on socioeconomic and geographic regions, it's actually divided over language barriers. We have two groups. We have the Hebraic Jews and we have the Hellenist Jews. Now the church hasn't yet split out of the synagogue, but it's in the process of doing so. The Messianic Jews are not yet quite in their own settings, but they're starting to separate one from another, from the Jews who have not embraced Christ to those who have. But again, we have two major groups, but 480 synagogues. The two major groups are the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews. The Hebraic Jews are kind of like the Jews' Jew. They never took part in the diaspora, the dispersion, all the way back in 300 BC when Alexander the Great came into this part of the country, many of the Jews in Jerusalem left Jerusalem and went out into the dispersion, the diaspora. They left the synagogues. They left the teaching of the Torah. They left the temple. They left all of that behind and they went out into the Greek-speaking world. The Hebraics did not do that. They were a Jew's Jew. They would not abandon the land. They would not abandon their culture. They could still read the Old Testament in Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is a Hebrew dialect. They didn't need a translation. Their services were in Hebrew. And because of this, some of the Hebraic Jews kind of looked down on the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the second group from the Greek word helos, which means like a Greek. The Hellenists were chased out 300 years earlier and they had started to come back. They were returning from the diaspora, kind of like in 1947 and 48 with the British mandate where Israel became a nation once again and many Jews came back to Israel. That's what was happening in the first three century, or the first three decades of the first century AD. Many Jews were returning, but they were Hellenists. They had been living among the Greeks. They didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know Aramaic. They needed a church service with a translation. Three centuries earlier, in the third century BC, the Old Testament had been translated into what we know as the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. They needed that because they could not read the original writings. And you can imagine that the Hebraic Jews kind of looked down on the Hellenists as compromisers. You left the synagogues, you left the Torah, you left the teaching of the land, you left the temple, you left the land itself, you then lived among the Greeks for 300 years and now you're coming back. And there was a divide between these groups, not only in the Messianic church, but the non-Messianic church, there was a very clear divide. So we have two groups. And when the Messianic Jews who had come out of Judaism and embraced Christ, began to gather, they saw that we still have this divide. And what occurs is that 
Every Friday, this had been going on for centuries, every Friday, the kupa, the basket, was distributed among the widows. This would kind of be like a benevolent fund. It's probably more shekels than it is food. But every Friday, a group would go from house to house among the widows who could not provide for themselves, and they'd leave enough food for the week. Well, it appears that the Hellenists feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. I don't know if they are. The text actually doesn't tell us that. It says that there was a complaint made. We don't know if there's a cultural issue, if there's a language issue, if there is a prejudicial issue, if there's only an appearance issue. We're not sure exactly what's going on, but we do know that the Hellenists feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. That hadn't happened before. We know that there were 480 synagogues. Probably about 300 of them were Hebraic and maybe 180 were Hellenistic. We know this from something called the Talmud. The Talmud is a word that means the teaching and it actually has two sections. The Talmud has the traditions. Many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof. The traditions. These are the traditions of the Jews and it's written down. They're the oral traditions. It's written down in something called the Mishnah. And then there's a second part called the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. And together it is the Talmud and it tells us how Jews lived in the early centuries. And in the Talmud, it tells us that there are 480 synagogues. Every church, just like today, has a slightly different flavor. But what was very dividing was whether it taught in Hebrew or Aramaic or it taught in Greek. But now we have, coming out of both sections, a new church, a messianic church, Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And for the first time ever that we know of, Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews are gathering together in one service and they're sharing the kupa, the basket, among their attenders and there seems to be conflict. Again, we don't know why. We don't know if the widows just perceive a slightening or if there's a language barrier or a cultural barrier or there's true prejudice. We don't know, but we've got a problem. And verse one speaks of the problem. They're not getting the help. So what would be the right solution? Again, I can be thankful as I look at the text that they handled the problem. We got problems all the time in churches. Churches are messy. Churches are made of messes because you and I are messes and, and this is a mess. This text is a mess. This is a conflict within the church. Kind of like the church in Dallas has a mess over a piece of ham. Or the church in Rebecca Pippert's book has a mess in a guy walking in and he doesn't know how you ought to act in a church. Churches are filled with messes. But thankfully this church handles the messes. They don't sweep it under the rug. They handle the mess. They do something. Notice also what they don't do. Verse 2 and verse 4. 
The apostle says, judge for yourselves, it is right if we give up the preaching of the word and prayer to wait on tables. We will pray and we will teach. Somebody else will wait on tables. Now, I don't know what you think of that. Maybe you have been reading from Matthew 23, uh, verse 11, that says that those who are great should not neglect those who are less, or the greater should be a servant of all. And you say, well, I'm not really impressed with these apostles. I mean, come on. They are above waiting on tables. Is that really what we want for God's people? Above taking down chairs at the 1030 service? Are, are they above pulling weeds? Are, are they above pushing a vacuum? But I think that misses the point of the text. It's actually not waiting on tables like a potluck. This is the trapezes. This is the table. This is a word used for the money changers. It talks about not so much distributing food as distributing money to people that they might buy food. And the point of the apostles is this. It's not that they're too busy to meet with some widows and to give some money. It's that they understand that God has empowered his people to do ministry. There are more ministers than those who are vocational. It's an understanding that God has laid on their heart a certain set of activities that they are trained for, that they are equipped for, that they are gifted for, and they ought to serve in that area and find other ministers, women and men, to serve in other areas. It's an understanding that at the moment in which you and I come to Christ, we are given one or more spiritual gifts. We can read about this in 1 Corinthians 7 and 12 and 14 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 5 and 1 Peter 4. We can read about these spiritual gifts that God gives us. Maybe wisdom, maybe knowledge, maybe discernment, maybe leadership, maybe administration, maybe teaching, maybe serving, maybe giving, maybe a gift of mercy or evangelism or helps or hospitality. God has given every one of us one or more spiritual gifts to minister within the body of Christ and to be glor bring glory to his name. And what he had given the apostles was an ability to teach in a way that impacted the congregation. And so they wisely said, judge for yourselves what is right. We need to minister the word of God and to pray because that's how God has equipped us that we might equip others. Their motivation is quite godly. Their motivation is to equip others to do works of ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 says. That the teaching of the word of God is to equip the laity to do the works of ministry inside the church and outside the church. But we're not always good at that in our society. I think Highland's really good at it, but we're not very good at it as a society. Sometimes we have this mentality that if the pastor isn't at every meeting, it's not a meeting. If the pastor doesn't visit me in the hospital, I haven't been visited. 
If the pastor doesn't send me a card, I didn't get one. If the pastor isn't teaching the Bible study or leading communion, then it really didn't occur. It was something less than that. And we have this sense, not Highland, but in our society that we have hired a hired gun to do all the works of ministry where actually scripture says that those who teach are to equip the laity to do works of ministry inside and outside the church. That's what God's word clearly says. And yet sometimes that's not been the model. And because of that, I think we have anemic churches. We're not using the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to us. And I think we actually rob our congregations of time that should be spent in prayer and study because people are running around doing things that others are equipped to do. I think that the average sermon at Highland is about 35 minutes, unless Andrew's preaching. <laughs> then it's like 65 minutes. But the average time slot we're given is 35 minutes, and I think it ought to take at least 30 hours to write and to pray and to prepare for a 35-minute message. One of my professors, Dr. D.A. Carson, would disagree. I remember him telling me that, Jeff, you need one hour of study for every one minute in which you preach. So he would argue 35 hours for 35 minutes. The text actually doesn't give us a time, does it? But it does say that these apostles are resisting doing all the ministry because God has laid on their heart to be praying and to be preaching and teaching the word of God, to be equipping the congregation to do the works of ministry. They're doing what God has laid on their heart. So what are they to do? They don't want to neglect the problem, but they don't want to neglect what God has laid on their heart. So the text tells us that they gathered the people together and they said, choose seven godly men among you. Pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. That word pick out is actually a medical word. It means dissect. Uh, it means to evaluate carefully. And these individuals are going to do what? They're going to oversee the distribution of the finances, the benevolent fund. So in our logic, we might say, well, then we need an accountant and maybe somebody with a deep pocket in case we run out, they can write an extra check out of their own proceeds. But that's not what the text says. It says, pick seven men of good repute who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that could cause us a little bit of consternation. We might say, well, I thought from Ephesians 1, at the moment in which you and I came to Christ, we believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's actually what Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says. The Holy Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. He indwells us and empowers us to turn from sin and towards righteousness. That is absolutely true. And he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, 
will be faithful to complete it because the Holy Spirit is working in and through you. So the text is not talking about just Christians who have the Holy Spirit residing in us, which is true for all who believe in Jesus. It's talking about something a little bit more. It's talking about the overfilling. It's talking about individuals who are walking in the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's talking about people who are in the Word, who are in prayer, who are devoted to God. Choose seven of these individuals to oversee the Kupa that we might ensure that the Hellenistic Jews, these widows, do not feel neglected. Further, notice something about the seven. Let me read their names again. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, Nicholas. All seven are Hellenists. That's a little bit surprising. There's not a Hebraic name there. Those are Greek names, all seven of them. Now, Scholars will tell us that there is almost a two-to-one, not quite, of Hebraic synagogues to Hellenistic synagogues of this time. In other words, the Hebraic Jews are in control. They could easily have said, you know, we have the numbers. Uh, we're going to pick seven. We're going to make five Hebraic Jews, real Jews, 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 Jews that can read the Bible as it was originally written. And then we'll have two of you compromisers join them. You know, kind of second rate. They could have gotten away with that because they had the numbers, they had the influence. But remember, unity. Unity is bringing people along. Unity is not always standing up for every right that we have. Sometimes we actually subdue our rights in order to bring unity within the body of Christ. And so they said, choose seven. Oh, by the way, make them all Greek speakers. Because it's the Greek speaking widows that are hurting, let's just, let's make sure they're not hurting again. We'll, we'll pick people that know your widows to oversee the coupon for all of us. We trust you won't over or, or shun ours. Uh, we're gonna trust you on both halves, but choose seven Greek speakers and they're going to oversee the coupon. That is incredible grace. There's something else I noticed from the text. Just because somebody is godly doesn't mean five or 10 years from now, they will remain as godly. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I don't think that refers to a loss of salvation. I think that refers to sometimes we are white hot for Jesus. Sometimes we are red hot for Jesus. Sometimes we are on point. We're in the word, we're in prayer, we're in fellowship. And then sometimes we kind of slide a little bit and we're a little more in the world. And if there's not some correctives, we slide a, a little bit more and a little bit more and how disconcerting and sad that is. And when that happens, especially with a leader, sometimes our faith gets crushed 
because we forget that God never disappoints. Leaders sometimes do. So we have one of the seven that really will become a great disappointment in the church of Jesus Christ. His name is Nicholas. Nicholas is talked about in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, verse 6 and 16. I'm just going to read Revelation 2, 6. This is to the seven churches of Asia. This happens to be the church of Ephesus. Yet this you have. That is, there's something good in the church of Ephesus. This you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The work of the Nicolaitans is a group founded by Nicholas a couple decades later. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What are the Nicolaitans? Well, we don't need to guess because Irenaeus, an early church father, was born in 130 AD, wrote extensively about them. They were a group that taught that if you commit fornication on the eighth day, you were forgiven, whether you asked for forgiveness or not, whether you repented or not. Eight days after immorality, it was just wiped clean. It sounds a lot like the world I live in today, except you don't have to wait eight days. By the way, did you notice what God said? You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. God hates immorality. We live in a day and age where immorality is just so, oh well, it happens, it's no big deal. God says he hates it. And Nicholas was a part of that. Did Nicholas shock God? No. Nicholas shocked us. God knows the end from the beginning. God even knows middle knowledge. He knows what could have been. Nicholas never shocked God. We don't shock God. I take the text at face value. There was a time in Nicholas's life when he was red hot for God. He was on fire for the Lord. And then he allowed the world to slide into his life more and more and more. And an entire group fashioned after that. We don't even need to guess what the area of weakness in Nicholas's life was. It was immorality. And I think for a long time he said no and he fought it. And it was a daily fight on his knees praying, guarding his eyes, guarding his mind. Until he didn't. Until he didn't. And an entire group was founded on the rationale he must have given. Well, after eight days, God will forgive me anyway. And God said to the church at Ephesus, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what are we to do with leadership? Well, we're to follow it. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, 
and not with groaning. So we follow leaders, but we pray for leaders because they're fallen humans. And we hold them to biblical standards. And when they start moving away from biblical standards, we insist on their removal. That's what we do. But we don't allow our faith to be shipwrecked when a human disappoints. A human will disappoint. God never will do so. And so as I look at the text, it's a call for unity in the church. It's a call sometimes to give up our liberties on behalf of others. Isn't that what Romans 14 teaches? It's a call to care about the least of these. In this case, the Hellenist widows who had no voice. It's a call to put others in front of ourselves. The Hebraic Jews allowed the Kupa to be controlled by the Hellenists rather than themselves. It's a call to follow leaders, but to always know that leaders will fail us to pray for them and hold them accountable. It's a call for us to get engaged, to use the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to us. It's a call for life transformation, your lives and mine. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you once again for the book of Acts as we make our way through this book. So much to learn, so much to apply. We know that your word, we believe that your word is inspired, inerrant. And we want to live it out. As James admonishes, we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. So Father, if we have been a part of a lack of unity I pray that you convict us and we would reconcile. If we have been lazy with our spiritual gifts, I pray that you would convict us and we would find places to serve. If we have not carried for the least of these, I pray that you would convict us and open our eyes to the needs around us. Father, may your church function as you desire and even command your church to function. We ask that you would do this work in and through us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.